PTJ podcasts are made possible by the American Physical Therapy Association. This podcast is sponsored by HydroWorks. HydroWorks, a premier manufacturer of aquatic rehabilitation fitness products, offers innovation in every pool. With an integrated underwater treadmill, fully adjustable floor, and options to fit every application and budget. For more information, visit www.hydroworx.com. Welcome to this PTJ podcast. PTJ is the official publication of the American Physical Therapy Association. PTJ disseminates basic and applied science related to physical therapy, contributes evidence to guide clinical decision-making, and publishes scholarly perspectives from around the world. And now, your host, Donovan Stutel. Welcome to PTJ's Audio Abstracts podcast for November 2010. This month's research reports focus on Outcomes after intervention for diabetic peripheral neuropathy. Use of measurement tools in practice. Walking independence in hospitalized older adults. Fall-related efficacy in older adults. Use of physical therapy services among adults with multiple sclerosis. Muscle architecture in cerebral palsy. Core journals that publish clinical trials of physical therapy. And measurement of femoral torsion. This month's case report focuses on Persistent Mobility Disability After Neurotoxic Chemotherapy. This month's perspective articles focus on the Physical Therapy and Society Summit, PASS, meeting, and the Move and Play study. This month's issue also contains the 41st Mary McMillan Lecture, Destiny is Now, given by Dr. Andrew Guccione, and the 2010 APTA Presidential Address, State the Obvious, given by APTA President Dr. R. Scott Ward. Audio podcasts of the Macmillan Lecture, APTA Presidential Address, and the 2010 Jules Rothstein Debate will be available online at ptjournal.apta.org and on iTunes. First this month, fall and balance outcomes after an intervention to promote leg strength, balance, and walking in people with diabetic peripheral neuropathy. Feet First Randomized Controlled Trial by Dr. Robin Cruz, Dr. Joseph Lamaster, and Dr. Richard Matson. This abstract is presented by Dave Corvoisier. Weight-bearing exercise has been discouraged for people with diabetes mellitus and peripheral neuropathy. However, people with diabetes mellitus and insensate feet have an increased risk of falling. Lower extremity exercise and balance training reduce fall risk in some older adults. It's unknown whether those with neuropathy experience similar benefits. As part of a study of the effects of weight-bearing exercise on foot ulceration in people with diabetes mellitus and peripheral neuropathy, the effects of a lower extremity exercise and walking intervention on balance, lower extremity strength, and fall incidence were determined. The study was an observer-masked, 12-month, randomized controlled trial. Part 1 of the intervention took place in physical therapy offices, and Part 2 took place in the community. The participants were 79 people who were mostly sedentary and who had diabetes mellitus and peripheral neuropathy. 38 participants were randomly assigned to a control group, and 41 were assigned to an intervention group. Part 1 included leg strengthening and balance exercises and a graduated self-monitored walking program. Part 2 included 
motivational telephone calls. Both groups received regular foot care, foot care education, and eight sessions with a physical therapist. The measurements collected were strength, balance, and participant-reported falls for the year after enrollment. There were no statistically significant differences between the groups for falls during follow-up. At 12 months, there was a small increase in the amount of time that participants in the intervention group could stand on one leg with their eyes closed. No other strength or balance measurements differed between the groups. This study had the following limitation. The study was designed to detect differences in physical activity, not falls. The intensity of the intervention was insufficient to improve strength and balance in this population. The training program had a minimal effect on participants' balance and lower extremity strength. Increasing weight-bearing activity did not alter the rate of falling for participants in the intervention group relative to that for participants in the control group. People who are sedentary and who have diabetes mellitus and peripheral neuropathy appear to be able to increase activity without increasing their rate of falling. This article has a bottom-line clinical summary and is the subject of a discussion podcast. Lead author Dr. Robin Cruz is a research associate professor in the Department of Family and Community Medicine in the School of Medicine at the University of Missouri in Columbia, Missouri. Next, promoting the use of measurement tools in practice, a mixed method study of the activities and experiences of physical therapist knowledge brokers. By Lisa Rivard, Dr. Diane Russell, Lori Roxborough, Dr. Marjolein Ketelar, Dr. Doreen Bartlett, and Dr. Peter Rosenbaum. The use of knowledge brokers has been recommended as a mechanism to facilitate the use of research evidence in clinical practice. However, little has been written regarding the practical implementation of the knowledge broker role. This article has two objectives. One, to describe the brokering activities of 24 pediatric physical therapist knowledge brokers in Ontario, Alberta, and British Columbia, Canada, and two, to report the knowledge brokers' perceptions of the utility of their role and their experiences with the brokering process. A mixed methods research design was used in this investigation, which was part of a larger knowledge translation study that demonstrated the effectiveness of using knowledge brokers to implement a group of evidence-based measurement tools into practice. The knowledge brokers completed weekly activity logs, which were summarized and described. Semi-structured telephone interviews with knowledge brokers were analyzed qualitatively to provide insight into their perceptions of their role and the brokering process. Major interview themes were identified and verified through member checking. Brokering activities varied considerably as knowledge brokers adapted to meet the needs of their colleagues. The knowledge brokers indicated that they highly valued the connection to the research community and spoke of the enthusiastic engagement of their physical therapist colleagues and others in their organization in the brokering process. They discussed the importance of understanding the practice context and organizational factors that could affect knowledge transfer. The knowledge brokers spoke of the need to dedicate time for the role and had a strong sense of the supports needed to implement a knowledge broker role in the future. Considerable variation in brokering activities was demonstrated across the knowledge broker participants. The knowledge brokers perceived their role as useful, 
and indicated that organizational commitment is crucial to the success of this knowledge translation strategy. Three e-appendixes for this article are available online. Lead author Lisa Rivard is Research Coordinator at the CanChild Center for Childhood Disability Research at the Institute for Applied Health Sciences at McMaster University in Hamilton, Ontario, Canada. Next, Walking Speed Threshold for Classifying Walking Independence in Hospitalized Older Adults by Dr. James Graham, Dr. Steve Fisher, Dr. Yvonne Marie Berger, Dr. Yong Fang Guo, and Dr. Glenn Ostier. Walking speed norms and several risk thresholds for poor health outcomes have been published for community-dwelling older adults. However, it is unclear whether these values apply to hospitalized older adults. The purpose of this cross-sectional study was to determine the in-hospital walking speed threshold that best differentiates walking independent from walking dependent older adults. This study recruited a convenient sample of 174 ambulatory adults aged 65 years and older who had been admitted to a medical surgical unit of a university hospital. The participants had a mean age of 75 years. 59% were women, 66% were white, and more than 40% were hospitalized for cardiovascular problems. Usual pace walking speed was assessed over 2.4 meters. Walking independence was assessed through self-report. Several methods were used to determine the threshold speed that best differentiated walking independent patients from walking dependent patients. Approaches included a receiver operating characteristic curve, sensitivity and specificity, and frequency distributions. The participants had a mean walking speed of 0.43 meters per second and 62% reported walking independence. Nearly 75% of the patients walked more slowly than the lowest community-based risk threshold, yet 90% were discharged home. Overall, cut-point analyses suggested that 0.30 to 0.35 meters per second may be a meaningful threshold for maintaining in-hospital walking independence. For simplicity of clinical application, 0.35 meters per second was chosen as the optimal cut point for the sample. This threshold yielded a balance between sensitivity and specificity, 71% for both. The limitations of the study were the small size of the convenience sample and the single health outcome measure. Walking speeds of older adults who are acutely ill are substantially slower than established community-based norms and risk thresholds. The threshold identified, which was approximately 50% lower than the lowest published community-based risk threshold, may serve as an initial risk threshold or target value for maintaining in-hospital walking independence. This article has a bottom-line clinical summary. Lead author Dr. James Graham is assistant professor in the Division of Rehabilitation Sciences at the University of Texas Medical Branch in Galveston, Texas. Next, improved fall-related efficacy in older adults related to changes in dynamic gait ability by Dr. Mark Bishop, Dr. Tara Patterson, Dr. Sergio Romero, and Dr. Kathy Light. Low fall-related efficacy is associated with the number and severity of future falls in older adults with balance disorders. 
The purpose of this study was to examine whether improvements in clinical measures of balance after an intervention program were associated with changes in efficacy. A prospective, non-experimental, pre-test, post-test design was used. The participants were 63 people, 43 men and 20 women with a mean age of 76 years who had a history of at least two falls in the previous 12 months. The participants were enrolled between 2004 and 2008 to take part in a 12-week home exercise program. Balance deficits were identified using the Berg Balance Scale and the Dynamic Gait Index, and participants were evaluated monthly. The Falls Efficacy Scale was used to measure efficacy. Hierarchical linear regression was used to assess the relationship between measures of balance and efficacy before the intervention. A second model examined the relationship between changes in balance and changes in efficacy after participation in the program. Pre-intervention scores of efficacy were significantly associated with age, depression, and Berg Balance Scale and Dynamic Gait Index scores. After controlling for age, depression, and strength, Berg Balance Scale and Dynamic Gait Index scores together accounted for 34% of the variance in pre-intervention efficacy. Significant improvements were noted in efficacy, Berg Balance Scale, and Dynamic Gait Index scores, and depression after intervention. When controlling for pre-intervention efficacy and changes in depression, the changes in Berg Balance Scale and Dynamic Gait Index scores together explained 11% of the variance in the change in fall-related efficacy. However, only Dynamic Gait Index scores contributed uniquely. These results are tempered by the absence of a control group to examine the role of time on changes in efficacy. The results suggest that increased emphasis on mobility during rehabilitation leads to improved confidence to perform activities of daily living without falling. This article has a bottom-line clinical summary. Lead author Dr. Mark Bishop is assistant professor in the Department of Physical Therapy at the University of Florida in Gainesville, Florida. Use of physical therapy services among middle-aged and older adults with multiple sclerosis by Dr. Marcia Finlayson, Dr. Matthew Plough, and Chi Chow. There is limited understanding of the utilization of and perceived need for physical therapy services among middle-aged and older adults with multiple sclerosis. The resulting knowledge gap compromises efforts for physical therapy service planning for this population. The purpose of this cross-sectional descriptive study was to examine the use of and need for physical therapy services in a sample of adults with multiple sclerosis living in the Midwestern United States. Data from telephone interviews with 1,065 people with multiple sclerosis aged 45 to 90 years were used for the study. A multinomial regression model was used to determine factors associated with use of physical therapy services never, within the past year, more than a year ago. Logistic regression analysis examined factors associated with unmet needs for these services. 
36% of the sample reported never using physical therapy services. 33% reported using physical therapy services within the past year. And 31% reported using physical therapy services more than a year prior to the interview. Factors associated with recent use of physical therapy services included living in an urban or suburban community, deteriorating multiple sclerosis status, experiencing problems with spasticity, having difficulty moving inside the house, being hospitalized in the past six months, and seeing a family physician. These same factors were associated with unmet needs. This study had the following limitations. Physical therapy service use was self-reported, and data were collected in five Midwestern states from people 45 years of age or older which may limit generalizability. Factors associated with use of and need for physical therapy services reflect issues of access, geographical issues, referrals, multiple sclerosis status, and mobility difficulties. Lead author Dr. Marcia Finlayson is professor in the Department of Occupational Therapy at the University of Illinois at Chicago, in Chicago, Illinois. Next, Muscle architecture predicts maximum strength and is related to activity levels in cerebral palsy by Dr. Noel Moreau, Dr. Kit Simpson, Dr. Charlene Tifi, and Dr. Diane Damiano. Muscle architecture is known to be predictive of muscle function. However, it is unknown whether this relationship is similar in children and adolescents with and without cerebral palsy. The objective of this study was to determine whether the architecture of the rectus femoris and vastus lateralis muscles was predictive of maximum voluntary knee extensor torque in children and adolescents with and without cerebral palsy, and whether these measures were related to activity and participation levels. A case control design was used. Eighteen participants with cerebral palsy who had a mean age of 12 years and were at gross motor function classification system levels 1 through 4 were evaluated. Twelve age-matched peers with typical development who had a mean age of 12 years were also evaluated. Muscle thickness, fascicle length, and fascicle angle of the rectus femoris and vastus lateralis muscles were measured with two-dimensional B-mode ultrasound imaging. The activity and participation measures used for participants with cerebral palsy were the Pediatric Outcomes Data Collection Instrument and the Activities Scale for Kids performance version. When age and gross motor function classification system level were controlled for, vastus lateralis muscle thickness was the best predictor of knee extensor isometric torque in the group with cerebral palsy. This prediction was similar to the prediction from vastus lateralis muscle thickness and age in participants with typical development. Rectus femoris muscle fascicle length was significantly correlated with the sports and physical functioning scale of the Pediatric Outcomes Data Collection Instrument. Vastus lateralis muscle fascicle angle was correlated with the transfers and basic mobility scale of the Pediatric Outcomes Data Collection Instrument and with the locomotion subdomain of the activity scale for kids performance version. A limitation of this study was the small sample size. 
ultrasound measures of vastus lateralis muscle thickness adjusted for age and gross motor function classification system level were highly predictive of maximum torque and have the potential to serve as surrogate measures of voluntary strength in children and adolescents with and without cerebral palsy. This article has a bottom-line clinical summary. Lead author Dr. Noel Moreau is assistant professor in the Department of Health Professions at the Medical University of South Carolina in Charleston, South Carolina. Next, core journals that publish clinical trials of physical therapy interventions by Dr. Leonardo Oliveira Penacosta, Dr. Ann Mosley, Dr. Catherine Sherrington, Dr. Christopher Marr, Dr. Robert Herbert, and Dr. Mark Elkins. The objective of this study was to identify core journals in physical therapy by identifying those that publish the most randomized controlled trials of physical therapy interventions, provide the highest quality reports of randomized controlled trials, and have the highest journal impact factors. This study was an audit of a bibliographic database. All trials indexed in the Physiotherapy Evidence Database, or PEDRO, were analyzed. Journals that had published at least 80 trials were selected. The journals were ranked in four ways. 1. Number of trials published. 2. Mean total PEDRO score of the trials published in the journal regardless of publication year. 3. Mean total PEDRO score of the trials published in the journal from 2000 to 2009. And 4. 2008 Journal Impact Factor. The top five core journals in physical therapy ranked by the total number of trials published were Archives of Physical Medicine and Rehabilitation, Clinical Rehabilitation, Spine, British Medical Journal, or BMJ, and Chest. When the mean total PEDRO score was used as the ranking criterion, the top five journals were Journal of Physiotherapy, Journal of the American Medical Association, or JAMA, Stroke, Spine, and Clinical Rehabilitation. When the mean total PEDRO score of the trials published from 2000 to 2009 was used as the ranking criterion, the top five journals were Journal of Physiotherapy, JAMA, Lancet, BMJ, and Pain. The most highly ranked physical therapy-specific journals were Physical Therapy, ranked 8th on the basis of the number of trials published, and Journal of Physiotherapy, ranked 1st on the basis of the quality of trials. Finally, when the 2008 impact factor was used for ranking, the top five journals were JAMA, Lancet, BMJ, American Journal of Respiratory and Critical Care Medicine, and Thorax. There were no significant relationships among the rankings on the basis of trial quality, number of trials, or journal impact factor. Physical therapists who are trying to keep up to date by reading the best available evidence on the effects of physical therapy interventions have to read more broadly than just physical therapy-specific journals. Readers of articles on physical therapy trials should be aware that high-quality trials are not necessarily published in journals with high impact factors. Lead author Dr. Leonardo Costa is Research Fellow in the Musculoskeletal Division at the George Institute for International Health 
in Sydney, New South Wales, Australia, and is Associate Professor in the Masters in Physical Therapy program at the Universidade Cidade de São Paulo in São Paulo, Brazil. Measurement of Femoral Torsion by Ultrasound and Magnetic Resonance Imaging Concurrent Validity by Dr. Cornelia Kulig, Dr. Kelly Harper-Hannigan, Dr. Richard Souza, and Dr. Christopher Powers. Abnormal femoral torsion has been linked to osteoarthritis in the knee as well as to patellofemoral pain. Inexpensive, valid, and reliable methods for assessing femoral torsion are needed. Ultrasound is a non-invasive and clinically accessible method that can be used for the assessment of bone morphology such as femoral torsion. The objective of this study was to determine the concurrent validity of ultrasound for the measurement of femoral torsion with a reference method magnetic resonance imaging or MRI. Repeated measurements of femoral torsion were obtained with ultrasound and MRI in a laboratory setting. 28 people, 4 men, and 24 women with mean age of 26.8 years, a mean body height of 170.3 centimeters, and mean body weight of 64.7 kilograms participated in this study. T1-weighted axial oblique images of the femoral neck and epicondylar axis were acquired with a 1.5 Tesla magnetic resonance system. Ultrasonographic measurements then were obtained by a tilting technique with a linear transducer that was 4.5 centimeters long and operated at a frequency of 10 megahertz and a depth of 5 centimeters. The average angles of antiversion measured by ultrasound and by MRI were 20.7 degrees and 19 degrees, respectively. The reliability, reported as the intra-class correlation coefficient of repeated measurements of in vivo femoral torsion by ultrasound, was 0.98. The reliability of MRI analysis was 0.96. The standard error of the measurement for ultrasound was 2.2 degrees, and that for MRI was 1.9 degrees. The concurrent validity of ultrasound with MRI was 0.93. A limitation of this study is that obtaining measurements by ultrasound requires appropriate training before data collection. Ultrasound measurement of femoral torsion has high concurrent validity with in vivo MRI and may be used when an assessment of bony morphology is needed but MRI is not available. Lead author Dr. Cornelia Kulig is Associate Professor of Clinical Physical Therapy in the Division of Biokinesiology and Physical Therapy at the University of Southern California in Los Angeles, California. This month's case report is Persistent Mobility Disability After Neurotoxic Chemotherapy by Dr. Elizabeth Heil, Dr. G. Kelly Fitzgerald, and Dr. Stephanie Studinsky. The impact of cancer and its treatments on balance and functional mobility in older adults remains unknown but is increasingly important given the evolution of cancer treatments. Subacute and more persistent side effects, such as chemotherapy-induced peripheral neuropathy, are on the rise, and the effects on mobility and balance, as well as the prognosis for resolution of any functional deficits, must be established before interventions can be trialed. 
The purpose of this case report is to describe the severity and long-term persistence of mobility decline in an older adult who received neurotoxic chemotherapy. To the author's knowledge, this is the first case report to describe an older adult with chemotherapy-induced peripheral neuropathy using results of standardized balance and mobility tests, and to focus on prognosis by repeating these measures more than two years after chemotherapy. An 81-year-old woman received a neurotoxic agent, paclitaxel, after a curative mastectomy for breast cancer. Baseline testing prior to taxane therapy revealed a socially active woman with no reported functional deficits or neuropathic symptoms, a gait speed of 1.2 meters per second, and performance at the ceiling on balance and gait portions of a standardized mobility measure. After three cycles, paclitaxel therapy was stopped by the oncologist because of neurotoxicity. Declines as large as 50% were seen in performance-based measures at 12 weeks and persisted at two and a half years. And the patient reported recurrent falls, cane use, and mobility-related disability. This case highlights the extent to which function can decline in an older individual receiving neurotoxic chemotherapy the potential for these deficits to persist years after treatment is stopped, and the need for physical therapy intervention and further research in this population. Two e-appendixes accompany this article online. This article also is the subject of an invited commentary by Dr. Kristen Campbell and Dr. Margaret McNeely. Lead author Dr. Elizabeth Heil is assistant professor in the Department of Physical Therapy in the School of Health and Rehabilitation Sciences at the University of Pittsburgh in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Our first perspective article is The Physical Therapy and Society Summit, PASS Meeting, Observations and Opportunities by Dr. Colleen Keegan, Dr. Mary Rogers, and Dr. Stephen Wolf. The construct of delivering high-quality and Cost-effective healthcare is in flux, and the profession must strategically plan how to meet the needs of society. In 2006, the House of Delegates of the American Physical Therapy Association passed a motion to convene a summit on how physical therapists can meet current, evolving, and future societal healthcare needs. The Physical Therapy and Society Summit, or PASS, meeting on February 27th and 28th, 2009 in Leesburg, Virginia, sent a clear message that in order for physical therapists to be effective and thrive in the healthcare environment of the future, a paradigm shift is required. During the PASS meeting, participants reframed the traditional focus on the physical therapist and the patient-client, or consumer, to one in which physical therapists are an integral part of a collaborative, multidisciplinary healthcare team with the healthcare consumer as its focus. The PASS Steering Committee recognized some of the opportunities that surfaced during the PASS meeting may be disruptive or may not be within the profession's present strategic or tactical plans. Thus, adopting a framework that helps to establish the need for change that is provocative and potentially disruptive to present care delivery, yet prioritizes opportunities, is a critical and essential step. Everyone in the physical therapy profession must take on post-pass roles and responsibilities to accomplish the systemic change that is so intimately intertwined with the profession's destiny. 
This article offers a perspective of the dynamic dialogue and suggestions that emerged from the PASS event, providing further opportunities for discussion and action within the profession. Lead author Dr. Colleen Keegan is Chief of Staff at the Center for Integration of Medicine and Innovative Technology and is Assistant Professor at the MGH Institute of Health Professions, both in Boston, Massachusetts. Last this month, the Move and Play study, an example of comprehensive rehabilitation outcomes research, by Dr. Doreen Bartlett, Dr. Lisa Sharello, Dr. Sarah Westcott-McCoy, Dr. Robert Palizano, Dr. Peter Rosenbaum, Dr. Lynn Jeffries, Dr. Alyssa laforme Fiss, and Barbara Stoskopf. This perspective article provides an example of a study planned using guidelines for comprehensive rehabilitation outcomes research, an approach that is believed to give service providers meaningful evidence to support practice. This line of investigation has been guided by the World Health Organization's International Classification of Functioning, Disability, and Health. The short title of a study underway is Move and Play, which stands for Movement and Participation in Life Activities of Young Children. The article briefly describes the conceptual model, provides guidelines on how indicators and measures are selected, alludes to the details of selected measures, and describes processes of preparing for data collection, including obtaining ethics approval, preparing data collection booklets, training assessors and interviewers, and sampling. The aim of this investigation is to gain a better understanding of the multiple child, family, and service factors associated with changes in mobility, self-care, and play of preschool children with cerebral palsy as a result of using this research method. Comprehensive Rehabilitation Outcomes Research holds promise in providing evidence that supports the complexities of planning rehabilitation services with clients with chronic conditions, such as children with cerebral palsy. This article is the subject of an invited commentary by Dr. Susan Horn. Lead author Dr. Doreen Bartlett is Associate Professor at the School of Physical Therapy, Faculty of Health Sciences, at the University of Western Ontario, in London, Ontario, Canada. Thanks for listening. This has been a production of Science Audio, online at www.scienceaudio.net. We always appreciate your feedback. You can email ptj at scienceaudio.net or leave a voicemail at 626-593-7825.